Well, it's good to be together again to uh, hear what God has to speak to us from His Word. Before we turn to God's Word, let's bow our heads in a short word of prayer. Lord, we uh, beseech you that you would uh, speak to us and that uh, your word may be heard above any other word so that we would rejoice in you and look to you. We pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us and we ask, O Lord, that Jesus may be first and foremost in our minds. Help us, Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, I was preaching from uh, chapter 3 of 1 Samuel here two weeks ago, you may recall, and I remember speaking to one of the elders, I think it was John Murdoch, uh, saying that I was going to give 1 Samuel a wee break uh, next time I was going to be preaching. So uh, I'm afraid that plan was dashed, courtesy of one Will Lind, who preached exactly what I had intended to preach from today. So the Lord does work in mysterious ways. Uh, I took that, that God wanted me to continue. So I am. And uh, we pray that he would enable us to look at something from, from this chapter. What I want to do uh, in chapter 4 tonight is not to look at it all, but to look at the first uh, 11 verses, which is uh, conveniently exactly half of the chapter. So just uh, to briefly recap on what we were looking at already, very brief, uh, chapter 1, if you're not familiar with the first book of Samuel, it speaks of uh, the birth of the baby Samuel at a time of uh, spiritual darkness in the history of God's people at this time. It was a time coming to the end of the time of the judges. And uh, the, 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 the religious temperature, if you like, of the land was very low. In chapter 1, we read about uh, a woman called Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and her faithfulness to the covenant Lord in the midst of her own experience of rejection, childlessness, and lots of other trials. In chapter 2, we read about the song of praise that Hannah sung to the Lord on the birth of uh, this son to her, having been barren for such a long time. Hannah's song of praise, uh, known as the Old Testament Magnificat. Uh, and we read there also that there were dire circumstances leading up to and uh, the prophecy of the rejection of uh, Eli's household, Eli being the high priest at the time. And uh, we read uh, in the, the text of these first three chapters that Eli's sons were far from being uh, uh, conforming to what the Lord was wanting them to do. They were priests uh, after uh, in succession to their father, who was the high priest of the time. And then uh, when we come to chapter 3, Samuel's call uh, from the Lord and his response under uh, the guidance of Eli, under whose supervision he was. 
And uh, as you come to the end of uh, chapter 3, we read there uh, of the glimmer of light from the Lord. Uh, At the end of chapter 3, at 19, if you've got your Bibles open, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Uh, And in verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And this is, as it were, an introduction to the life of Samuel and the the prophetic office uh, of Samuel being uh, the ruler of God's people until God uh, gave them a king. Things, uh, nevertheless, seemed to be going awry. Things don't seem to be getting any better. And this fourth chapter, uh, sad I am to say it, it doesn't seem to bring to us any uh, good news on the face of things. So things aren't very good at all. But as we progress through the chapter, uh, we'll see that in between all the bad news that seems to be in the foreground, there is a glimmer of light, still a glimmer of light for us, uh, but lessons to be learned uh, from this. I don't want us to be despondent, uh, not least for what we heard this morning from this lectern from Andy, with regard to the sacrifice that the Lord gave on our behalf that sins might be cleansed away. And when Andy was preaching from the context of the book of Leviticus, pointing forwards to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is something of that even in this chapter as well, if only the people of God were aware of that. And strangely enough, at the beginning of the chapter, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So Israel, as we saw last time, from north to south, were aware of the prophetic voice of God uh, through Samuel, but they weren't paying any heed to it. And that is why things were in the dark situation they were in. As I said already, chapter 4 splits into two uh, convenient sections And I want to look at verses 1 to 11, just for a short while with you. And this speaks uh, of the capture of the ark. And you could say, perhaps, that that is the main theme of this whole chapter, the capture of the ark of the covenant by the Philistines, verses 1 to 11. It's interesting that this section at verse 11 uh, reads, the ark of God was captured and right at the end of the chapter, the very same words are used, uh, speaking of uh, Phineas's uh, wife who died in childbirth, gave birth to a son who was called Ichabod. And in verse 22, we read, she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And it might be arguable to say that It wasn't right there that the glory had departed from Israel. It seems that there was darkness there. The glory of God's light wasn't being experienced in the life of the children of Israel. 
Uh, I'm going to cue Louise to give us a wee illustration. I think you all might know what this is. Uh, I'm not going to start speaking about Indiana Jones or anything like that, but I want us to have this, as it were, at the back of our minds, because this is what is being talked about in this narrative, and I want us just uh, to have some idea of uh, the, the, the importance of it to the children of Israel, or at least that it ought to have had for the children of Israel at this time. Uh, you'll find an account of the building of what is known as the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, this is one illustration of it. There are many different representations of how it was built and so on. Exodus 25 tells us that. Uh, and just uh, briefly to mention that it was something that uh, Moses was instructed to, to build as part of the way God was to reveal himself to his children, to his people at the time. It was just, you might say, a wooden box. But the wooden box, it was made of wood called acacia wood, and it was overlaid with the most precious of metals, gold, not only on the outside, but also on the inside. And it wasn't that big, you know. It was uh, three foot nine in old, in old imperial measurement, and two foot three wide and two foot three tall. I'm just looking behind me at the table here uh, in the church, this table. It was slightly smaller in dimension than that. So you can imagine uh, this, what might have been uh, initially seen to be a, a very humble thing, just a box, but uh, a lot of the way it was built symbolized much concerning the Lord himself. One thing about it, and we heard it mentioned, some translations call the lid of the box the atonement cover. Other translations call it the mercy seat. And the lid of the box, uh, known as such, it was made of solid gold, now, I don't know how many of you are of a scientific mind, but I'll give you an idea of how heavy gold is compared with water, for example. Uh, if you had a liter of water in a bottle and you substituted it with gold, it would be at least 18 times as heavy. Gold was that heavy. And not only was it heavy, but it was obviously a very valuable metal, a noble metal, and it conveyed uh, to the children of Israel at that time something of the purity that belonged to the Lord. So it was known as the mercy seat, and at each end of it, as you can see in the illustration, there were two heavenly beings known as cherubim. At each end, they were face to face, and they were peering, as it were, downwards into the box, into this Ark of the Covenant. And not only were these things to be seen on the outside, notice also that there were poles. These poles were also made of the same type of wood, and they were over, uh, they were wrapped, as it were, in gold as well. So all you saw from the outside was gold, brilliance, nobility, uh, something pointing to the majesty of the God who was to be symbolized. But not only on the outside was there gold, 
But inside, as we read uh, particularly uh, in Hebrews, uh, there were three things. The two tables of the law, that is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. There was also a pot of manna, the heavenly bread that was sent down by God to feed the children of Israel in the wilderness. And there was also the rod of Aaron, the first priest ordained by God, a rod which symbolized uh, authority and power. And that rod miraculously was in full bud. It wasn't withering away at all, which again was a pointer to the eternal nature of the God who was being symbolized here. So there's the ark. Thank you, Louise. Uh, I don't want it to be an idol for us. I just had that up for a few minutes just by way of illustration because the, the ark and what it points to has been total, totally fulfilled for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this object was housed, uh, as Andy pointed out, in the holiest, in the holiest of holies in the tabernacle where the high priest of Israel went once every year with the blood of atonement. Hence, the, the name that is given to the lid. The blood was sprinkled on the lid and on the, on the ark itself, but particularly on the cover, which was a, a pointer to the great atonement that was to be made, the effective atonement, as we heard this morning from Andy. So, I, I was thankful to the Lord that there was some sort of dovetailing between what we had this morning, and it's amazing how the Word of God works that way. Now, this, this capture of the Ark of the Covenant, it was a huge event uh, in the history of the children of Israel. As I've already mentioned, there were, they were in a very low state spiritually. It is quite uh, amazing how we, we read there uh, uh, that there was no vision uh, at the beginning of uh, uh, chapter 3, verse, uh, the end of verse 1. The Word of God was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And elsewhere in the Scriptures, uh, you may be familiar with uh, a version Proverbs that says that righteousness alone exalts a nation, and without a vision, what happens? People perish. And this is what was happening here with the Lord's people. Even the Lord's people, they were in, in, a, in a type of dark captivity. And uh, we find that as, as we go on here, it says uh, at the beginning of chapter 4 that the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Uh, most commentators are of the opinion that that, verse, that part of verse 1 perhaps more rightly belongs to the end of chapter 3. Uh, so, the, the, the Philistines are brought to our attention. And, of course, the, the Philistines are depicted in Scripture as, in the Old Testament Scriptures, as the Israelites' nemesis in terms of those who were against them. And in a spiritual way, they, they, were, they represent, as did other peoples of that time, the dark force, the, the forces of evil. Uh, that were against the people of Israel. 
And we read at the beginning in, in verse 1 that uh, the battle lines were drawn, and sadly, defeat came to the Israelites yet again. And having, uh, having seen what we know so far about the spiritual temperature of the people, how much of God was being practiced in their lives, how much of a healthy attitude towards God was visible, not very much at all. So on reflection, it's not surprising that this should happen and uh, because of the spiritual health of the nation. And of course, the leadership was very much at fault here. As we've already seen, uh, <clears throat> the way uh, Eli didn't seem to be aware of what was going on and he was allowing his, his sons to, uh, to commit sacrilege and uh, live immoral lives, even as those who were supposed to be, uh, as it were, go-betweens at uh, the altar of the Lord as priests. In verse 3 we read, When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And sometimes, in very real ways, sometimes we ask ourselves that question when things don't seem to be going very well for us in our own lives at a spiritual level, even at a more collective level in a congregation, or as the Lord's people at large, as the church at large throughout the nation and throughout the world. So why this defeat? It's a, a question, a legitimate question, but uh, I think that their minds were uh, drawn away to what the right answer to the question uh, was. Why might there be a sense of defeat? Not just a sense of defeat, but just real defeat and no progress in their own lives here, just as it might be in ours at a spiritual level. And they say uh, in verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. And usually when things aren't going well for us, the first resort we have is to point the finger somewhere else, even upwards. It's the Lord's fault that things aren't going well with me, and we're, as it were, annoyed with the way God is acting, that things are going wrong for us, or at least it's someone else's fault and not mine. Someone else is to blame, and we are inclined to, be, uh, to adopt that attitude very often. Are we not guilty of it? Are we not guilty of uh, accusing others of our own uh, bad experiences sometimes, that things aren't going wrong, uh, going right with us? The wrongs that we're experiencing are uh, left at the door of somebody else. And as I've said already, sadly, in this context, the sinfulness of the leadership was being visited by the Lord. And although they had the right question, they ought to have been asking this question long, a long time ago, perhaps. And yet they didn't have, as I've said already, the right answer. And the covenant God was more than ready to respond to the question and to respond to it in a most compassionate way, but they would not listen. 
something like when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he accused them of not wanting. You do not desire. This is not a desire that you have. And there's a lesson for us there that, okay, those who are in leadership in the Lord's church have a certain responsibility to lead the Lord's people in the right ways. And we thank God that we have that with us here at St. Peter's, that the Lord has provided us with someone who is a leader, and also that the Lord, I trust, has blessed us with eldership that fear God, honor His name, and seek to do His will. One of the things that they didn't realize was missing from their, from, uh, their own experience was the need that they had to turn to the Lord in repentance because things weren't going very well. Repentance from erroneous ways, especially amongst the leadership, but amongst the people in general. And yet there were one or two, as we've seen in the experience of Hannah and Elkanah, who seemed to be God-fearers at the time. So repentance from erroneous ways would have been the right attitude, but the people seemed to be blind like that, as is depicted for us in the character of Eli. We hear, we read about him. He's the epitome, uh, the classic uh, representation of the people of whom he was the, the leader. And you know, the capture of the ark was something else that was going to be absent from them. And the very means whereby repentance was to be made under God's revelation for them at that time, the very means whereby repentance and atonement for sin was symbolized, the mercy seat, it was right there, but being grossly abused by Hophni and Phineas, who are named, and others, no doubt, as well. So, in a very real sense, you know, the writer to the Hebrews, the words from the writer to the Hebrews, I think, come to light here. They were guilty of trampling the sacred blood underfoot. Now, that's a very serious accusation. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think one deserves to be punished who has trampled on the Son of God, profaned his blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and insulted the Spirit of grace? This is what the leadership was guilty of doing. Very solemn, very grave, but there is no hopelessness here because the, the hope is there the means to God is there, but they weren't seeing it. And this is where the Israelites really had lost the plot. They adopted the mentality of the world around them as the Lord's people are being tempted to do through all the advertisements and all the other voices that are shouting at us from north, south, east, and west. What they adopted was the mentality of their pagan neighbors in their answer to the question, what will we do, as it were? And here, here we read 
in the, uh, in the middle of verse 3, let us, this is the answer to the question. Right, this is what we'll do. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that's where the ark was in the tabernacle, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Firstly, at the beginning of verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us? The Lord's to blame. And now they didn't resort to the Lord for help. They didn't ask him to come and bring them uh, uh, into a state of proper communion with himself in order to win the victories. In verse 3, we read, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They didn't realize what this ark of the covenant at the time was symbolizing. They had lost sight of all of that. And the ark as an object, beautiful as it was, beautifully clad in gold and so on and so forth, and what it contained. The ark as an object meant uh, more to them than the God of the ark, the covenant God whom the ark was meant to be symbolizing. And so often we can be like that as well. The things that God has set for us in our, uh, in our lives to worship him together we can use them in a superstitious way, and we can use them in our religious rituals until they become idols in their own right. It's very easy for that to happen. It's very interesting that uh, uh, in, in uh, his commentary on this, uh, Dale Ralph uh, Davis uh, calls the religion a rabbit foot religion. In other words, carrying around, uh, uh, they were treating the ark like a talisman, something that would bring them good favor. Let's take the ark, and God will then be obliged to help us out, whatever else happens. If the ark comes, there was some sort of superstitious recognition that the ark meant that God would be there. But they were forgetting that their relationship with God had to run much, much deeper than that. Let's take the ark. On whose authority? Our own authority. Let's just do whatever we like with what God has provided for us in order to worship him as he has ordained, and then God will favor us. Sometimes we set our plans before we ask God to guide us. They were using the ark then for a purpose for which they were not authorized by God. And this is the sad side, the, the disobedient side of the way the people were acting at that time. You know, when we read in the earlier part of the Scriptures in the book of Joshua, as, been, as we've been studying with Andy earlier on, God had authorized the ark to come and go. And it's very, it's a mystery why God should allow the ark to be taken into captivity, but, but, but there was a purpose for that. In Joshua chapter 3, uh, at the beginning of this book, 
God is encouraging the leader, the successor to Moses, to go out in, in the, the strength of God. And he, he speaks to Joshua regarding his own word. And he said, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And the people were obedient to the then leader of the people. And they, they said, they answered Joshua, all you have commanded us, we will do it. Whatever you send us, we will go just as we obeyed Moses in the things so, in all things, so we will obey you. Only may your Lord God be with you as he was with Moses. And the last verse of Joshua 1 says, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now, these are harsh words, but this is the justice of God being highlighted for us right at the outset before the children of Israel were to cross the Jordan and uh, claim uh, the, 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 the promised land. And it's interesting that in Joshua chapter 3, just before they crossed the Jordan, God had authorized the ark to precede his people across the Jordan and also when they came to, to fight against Jericho. It wasn't with arms, but under the, with the command of the Lord to circle uh, the walls of Jericho uh, so many times, and God would give them the victory. And the ark was there as well under the, author, the authority of God. But sadly, at this point in chapter 4, there's no mention of consultation with the Lord at all. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. It is only the Lord in every part of our lives, in every uh, part of the history of God's people, that will save us from our enemies. Only King Jesus has been appointed to deliver us, to save us, and to pro protect us from all his and our enemies. So the people uh, sent men to, this is uh, verse 4, uh, I should have said I'm using the ESV, so the people sent to Shiloh, brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. It's interesting how there is an allusion even to the ark itself there in these words. And at the end of verse 4, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And there is uh, there's an ominous silence about what's the role of Eli here. He was, uh, as it were, in charge of all, the, all the, the religious aspects of how the people were meant to be living and worshiping God. But it seems that the errant sons of Phineas had led the rest in their train, and there's no mention of the need to repent. There's no mention of 
the immorality that was widespread at the time. And it can only be said, as Jesus said of the Pharisees, sadly, that the Israelites here were a a poignant case, I think, of the blind leading the blind. And what we learn from this is that God is not to be manipulated. God is not to be coerced. God is not obligated to do his people's bidding. They must resort to the means he has ordained. Even although the Ark of the Covenant had been commissioned by God, it was only to be dealt with in the way that God had clearly set out in his word. And this is what the people here failed to do, particularly those who were in positions of responsibility and leadership. They ought to have turned. They ought to be, have, have been the ones who have been made aware of sin. And poor Eli, blind as he was physically, he seemed to be very dull to the need, the needs in amongst the people uh, to make use of the ordained things of God at the time in order to bring God's favor towards them. That is, to use the ordained means that God himself had authorized. Uh, They hadn't uh, made use of this ark with the mercy seat as it had been ordained to be the place of symbolic atonement for their own, the priest's own uh, gross sacrilege and their errant attitudes in the things that were used by God as a real, as a sign of the real atonement to come, which the ark pointed. They failed to appreciate even the symbolism of this object, the ark of the covenant. And Eli was as culpable as any of them. He, he was absent. There's a, a, a nominous silence about Eli at this part of the chapter, except of a mention of him uh, as being the father of Hophni and Phinehas. But he must have had some authority as to the movement of the ark from the tabernacle. And then the people are b- drawn into this. So easily we can be drawn into such things as well. They shouted in verse 5 with adulation. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth surrounded. They were, in a sense, rejoicing in the presence of this object rather than rejoicing in the Lord who was symbolized in the deepest ways by what the ark was. They failed miserably. They shouted in adulation of the ark of the covenant, not of the God of the ark of the covenant. And then it's so easy for us to be sucked into something like that. And in our New Testament, in our gospel era, God has he's left us with a few tangible things, a few visible tokens of what symbolizes our faith and our trust in the Lord, even as this morning was demonstrated so clearly. But the bread and the wine are only symbols 
of the reality. These people here were finding satisfaction in the trappings of religion rather than in a God who was ready to help them in dire need. And the question arises, how often do we practice trust in the various externals of our faith, which are legitimate in themselves, but how much do we practice trust in the externals of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than trusting in the Lord himself? How many of us trust in our faith even? How many of us trust in what we do? What about frequency of church attendance? Good, though that is. What about frequency, and I'm using these words carefully, frequency of prayer meeting attendances. That is good if done in the right way. Our use of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, if used in the right way, these things must never be used as superstitious ways in order to manipulate God. What about our private devotions? What about giving to the Lord's cause? What about helping others in need? What about donations to Christian mission work? All these things are good in themselves, but these things are not what our Christian faith is all about. These are not what uh, the essence of our Christian faith is. Not of works lest any man should boast. These things ought to be symbols of the reality that already is taking place in the Christian's life, doing these things, doing them as a sign that God loves us rather than doing them so that we will gain favor and our victories and even salvation itself. Yes, it's said in Scripture, and Samuel later on spoke to the errant King Saul, obedience is better than ritual sacrifice. We have what God has ordained for us. We practice that this morning. And it's good for us to learn just this simple lesson, that God is not to be manipulated And God will not give us a sense of victory in our lives unless we are following him in the way in which we ought to be following him. And horror of horrors, the ark of God was captured. We read this at the end of of this section. And I'm going to finish just with this. There were two reactions. It's very interesting how the, the, uh, the children of Israel, they, they, they shouted uh, with adulation because the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant had arrived. All the trappings were there as far as the, this talisman, this good luck symbol was there for us. But where is the Lord in all of this? Where is our God? There's no mention of him. And even the Philistines seem to have more sense of the existence of a mighty God from the history of the the children of Israel in the past. And they're talking in in terms of 
uh, in the way pagans used to talk about God. But it's interesting that uh, I think in the text here, what is this? This is verse uh, 6. What is this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews? These Hebrews, it's almost like a derogatory term that is being used for God's covenant people. They're just another race. What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? That the, the Philistines, because of their knowledge of what had happened in the history of God's people in the past, they seemed to associate that with some God that uh, belonged to the children of Israel. A God has come into the camp. Notice that in the ESV, at least in verse 7, a small g is used. And perhaps that's exactly the way in which the children of Israel themselves were dealing with the Ark of the Covenant. They had substituted the reality of the presence of God amongst them with something material, something that was visible and tangible. They were not living by faith. They were living very much by their senses, by sight. And just to conclude, all they did here was, that is, the Philistines, all they did was they adopted a, a humanistic approach to defeating uh, the Israelites. That's what the world around us will do. It's very interesting that the words that are being used by uh, the Philistines <coughs> uh, he, uh, here, say from verse 8 down to verse 9, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Plural. plural. Of course, the covenant God was referred to uh, in the Old Testament as uh, the pl in the plural plurality, pardon me, of majesty, Elohim. And Elohim is always talked of, even though it's plural, grammatically, it's only symbolically plural to convey the majesty of God in all that he is. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Verse 8, woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And in verse 9, they, take, they say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight but where was their courage to come from? It was to come from uh, their own humanistic, pagan approach to this confrontation. And yet, God allowed them, as a lesson for the children of Israel, to lose 30,000 soldiers in comparison to only, and I say that with, with reverence, Fourth, it was God, as though God was saying to them, it doesn't matter if you take the Ark of the Covenant with you uh, in the wrong way, you will still suffer defeat. And what we find here is that the Ark of God was captured. And you know, defeat sometimes, I don't want to end on a note of defeat tonight. I want to end on a note of victory because even at the time of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
What was apparent then but defeat and loss through death? The disciples scattered, but he swallowed up death in victory. That's what he did. God won the battle, and he has won the war for us to help us fight all the battles. And when we suffer defeat on the way to heaven, it is not a total loss. Remember how Paul describes his experience uh, to the Corinthians uh, during his ministry. He wasn't hopeless uh, through all the experiences that the Lord had taken him and his companions. It is, uh, he talks about his own weakness. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, not defeated, perplexed, but not driven to despair, not defeated. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The battle has been won, the war has been won, and our battles will be won for us. And as a congregation, I think sometimes we have to learn lessons that we don't use the trappings of our religion as means to manipulate God for our favor, but just to use them as God has ordained and to put our trust in the Lord, the God of the covenant, even our King the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May he bless our meditation on his word. Let's join in prayer for a minute or two. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and that even in the midst of periods of bad news and bad experiences for your people of old, yet we have good news. We have the best news of all in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood that was shed, for his body that was broken, of which we made remembrance of earlier today. And as we go into this week, Lord, grant us in our weaknesses to look to Him, to look to God, who is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in times of trouble. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.